Turn together to Paul's second letter to Corinthians in chapter 5, and we can read at verse number 18. Second Corinthians 5, at verse number 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was recon- reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so on down to the end of the chapter. We see that as we follow the, Paul's relationship with his church in Corinth, that it was a relationship that uh, moved into difficulties fairly quickly. And the main reason for that was the way in which they were false apostles and the ways in which they were following around after the culture around them as well. And for these two reasons, the, the church was going from one crisis to the next. And so we see Paul, because of his interest in this church, writing letters to them. And indeed, there's only one year between the first letter and the second letter, and that highlights for us the the sense of urgency uh, that Paul had with regard to the people of Corinth. And uh, it seems uh, clear that uh, the sense of urgency was with regard to their personal salvation. Other issues perhaps clouded that, but the real issue was their salvation. And we see that at the beginning of chapter number 6, where his concern is that they do not receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, that the message that they heard would not bring forth any fruit in their lives. That is his main concern. And when we read the earlier part of the chapter, we, we see that Paul comes to, to these verses at the end of this chapter, some of the, perhaps the greatest verses that we have in the New Testament, that when he comes to that, there is a certain background to it. There is a sense of hope at the beginning of the chapter, there is the sense of, of judgment that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then there is the, the sense of the love of Christ controlling him in all that he is doing. And when we come to look at these verses at the, the end of the chapter here, we want to bear these things in mind. That when he comes to uh, plead with them from these verses, he is doing so as somebody who is concerned for their salvation who wants them to note the hope of the gospel, who want them to remember that they are going to the judgment seat of Christ and that God's love is what moves around and it's God's love that's left him from verse 16 onwards, reminding them that he himself changed his mind about Jesus of Nazareth. And at the very center of our embracing of God's salvation in the gospel, It's changing your minds with regard to the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul knew him according to the flesh. It was a worldly kind of understanding. But he came to to regard him in a completely different way because of the way in which God met with him. And he goes on to explain how and why that happened. So we want to, to look at these verses. Notice the change that is required and to understand the way in which the gospel comes to us, 
and to do so under this heading that we are looking at, a plea for obedience to the message of the gospel. I only want to see, first of all, that we have an engagement. And the engagement is on the part of God. And God, of course, engages with everything because he created the worlds. Everything came to us from his hand. But here we see that he engages with the world. Not in the sense of the created world, but in the sense of the peoples of the world. And right back in Genesis chapter 12, we we see the way in which God promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his seed. And because of that promise, and because of the purpose of God, God is now coming here in these verses to engage with the world. And we understand the world as Paul describes it here as as a world that was accountable to God, as a world that was alienated from God, as a world in which it is true there is no one righteous, not even one. And when he comes to engage with this world, not only is that the case with regard to the world, but the issue is what affects his relationship with them. And that is that the world are guilty of trespasses. They have broken God's law. They have broken God's covenant. They have fallen by the wayside. They have deliberately transgressed the covenant of God, and by their deliberate sinful acts, they have offended God. And when we come to the gospel and and think of the way in which God engages with a world that has sinned against him, we always bear in mind that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humankind. We must reckon with the fact that the wrath of God falls on all of the sons of disobedience, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. We must reckon with the fact that the transgressions of the world have caused and provoked the anger of God so that his justice requires to be satisfied. And that justice we see in different parts of the Bible requires that because the the penalty of sin is death, that those who are guilty of sin are worthy of the penalty of eternal death. And we come to think of today of what made Paul change his mind about the Lord Jesus. And it comes back to the fact that he changed his mind about himself because he understands that when God came to engage with the world, as somebody who lived in that sinful world, that he himself was under the wrath and under the curse of God. And today we ourselves have to embrace that truth as it is the truth concerning ourselves. Paul says in another place in in Colossians chapter 1 that we are are hostile in our minds doing evil deeds. Can you today sit in the presence of God and feel comfortable there without any recognition or realization that what the truth says about sinful humankind 
does not does apply to you? And are you able to sit comfortably in the presence of this God, despite the way in which he sees the whole of humankind under this one umbrella? And the one umbrella that includes two simple factors. That is that you are an offender who deserves the penalty of eternal death and that God is the offended one and his justice requires that you be punished. And when we think of the engagement of God with regard to this world, that's not only the the background, but it's the, the wonderful way in which God responds to these truths and the way in which he engages here in this passage. And despite all of that, and perhaps because of all of that, if we bear in mind the purpose of God, and Paul begins with these words that God was in Christ, in verse number 19, there is that that sense where this was something purposeful. And when you think of the purposeful action of God, we are not to think of, of the God who is waiting for justice to be satisfied to make him the loving God. It is the God who is full of love for lost humankind, who has purpose to save, who so engages with the alienated humankind and does so in the person of his son. And when we see Jesus born in Nazareth, when we see Jesus living his life, when we see Jesus going to the cross, that's not the moment at which God was in Christ. We think of God before the world ever was, and he was in Christ going to engage in this way. Before mankind ever fell into sin, God was in Christ, planning in Christ, working in Christ, determining exactly how he was going to deal with a lost and sinful world. And here the engagement is that he is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Simply said, he is taking action to alter a broken relationship. He is taking action to transform the relationship between himself and a lost world and to make that new in such a way that there will be once more the kind of relationship that God purposed in the Garden of Eden, that God now purposes in the new covenant that he has promised, that new relationship where those who are alienated from him will become the children of God and will be in the family of God, knowing God as their father. And the God who takes the step to reconcile the world to himself, we see key things that that are so important for us to, to recognize. And the first thing is, that God is the initiator. We sit listening to the gospel today, and unless God does take the initiative, then nothing's going to change. We think of a sinful world, alienated from God, 
dead in trespasses and sins, never at any time will a lost, sinful world seek to be restored to God and indeed are not able to do so in any case. God takes the initiative. And the second thing is that he himself is the object of the reconciliation. He reconciles the world to himself. The issue is that his justice needs to be satisfied. The issue is that, that he himself must have that, that enmity against sin, that wrath of God. He must have that removed. And only he can do that. And he goes about doing that in the passion of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he is reconciling a lost human world to himself, he is doing so, in a sense, detached from the world, in the sense that, that a lost world has no part to play in the way in which God reconciles the world to himself. They are disconnected from this very transaction. They are disconnected because of their sin, but in the purposes of God, God, in the wonder of the work of, of reconciliation, he does so apart from them. There is distance in every way from the world that God is going to reconcile to the way in which he carries out the reconciliation. And the only connection between that lost world and the work of reconciliation is that God does so not counting their trespasses against them. Their sins are credited to his account in the sense that the guilt of their sin becomes the guilt of the, of the guiltless one. And he reconciles them to himself without in any way interfering with, with, with who they are and what they have done and leaving them in their sin and at the same time bringing about the reconciliation, the engagement. And because of that engagement, we can sing in Psalm number 32, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. We can hear Paul in Romans chapter 4 speak in the same way of, of, of those who are blessed whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That is the forgiveness of sin because this God is the God who plots out our transgressions for his own namesake in the words of Isaiah in chapter 43. The reconciliation. The reconciliation that is focused on God himself. He is the initiator, he is the subject, he is the object. It's all about what God does and what God does for his purpose. And Paul wants them to understand that the role of his own role has to do with the fact that this reconciliation is in the very first place apart from them and for them to recognize that this reconciliation is not yet complete. The engagement to bring about reconciliation 
a reconciliation that is not yet complete. And that brings us to the second thing, which is the encounter that Paul wants to highlight. And because of the engagement, there is an encounter now in the role of of Paul and of the apostles in the preaching of the word. That the God who was in Christ, who has reconciled the world to himself in the work that he has done, that there is an outstanding issue. And the outstanding issue is that the lost world must be reconciled to him. Because what has happened on, on Calvary's cross is meaningless unless it does impact upon those who are lost in the world and who are alienated from God. And in order to complete the reconciliation, in order to fill that gap, God, Jesus, Paul says in Romans 18, in verse number 18, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul has a service to carry out as a minister of the gospel to work with God to complete this reconciliation and to complete it through his ministry and and through his preaching. As he goes on to say, entrusting to us the ministry of or the message of reconciliation. How are they to reckon who Paul is? The Paul that they are struggling to accept as person and therefore accept as gospel. How are they going to understand Paul and Corinth? They must realize that Paul and Corinth is the minister of Christ to complete reconciliation with God. And for ourselves today, it's so essential that we, that as surely as appreciating the distance and the separate kind of way in which God reconciles us to himself in Christ, that part of the work of reconciliation, the second part that completes the whole, is that the gospel is preached. And in, in recognizing that, Recognizing the, the authority with which Paul speaks, that we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So what's happening in, in this encounter? It is the fact that sitting under the preaching of the gospel is nothing less than an encounter with God. God making his appeal through us. We'll read about Moses in Exodus chapter 4. And God put his hand, his hand, hands on Moses' lips, put his, his words into his mouth. We'll read the same with Jeremiah, somebody that, that's a kind of model for the Apostle Paul. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God does the same thing. He puts his hand on, on, on Jeremiah's mouth, he puts his words into his mouth. Who is Moses with this great congregation of Israel? He is the mouthpiece of God. Who is Jeremiah in the darkness of the days in which he lived? He is the mouthpiece of God. 
when Moses speaks, when Jeremiah speaks, it is nothing less than God speaking. And today we, we need to rediscover for ourselves that, that sense of the, the preaching moment being an encounter with God. And when we do appreciate that, it raises the stakes of everything that we are doing. It should take us out of our comfort zone. It should take us into the space that God provides under the gospel. The space into which we decide to move because we realize this is a serious moment. And we cannot today or, or any other day think otherwise. We cannot sit under the gospel at any time without realizing and remembering this is my next encounter with God. And in that encounter with God, God requires my obedience. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is nothing less than the command of God to which all of the people of God must give obedience. Be reconciled. God has reconciled the world to himself. And therefore, for that reconciliation to be complete, the command to you is to be reconciled to God. That's his urgent plea. The love of Christ controls us. We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here is the command which we mustn't disobey. That God commands you today to be reconciled. And in, in that command coming through in the gospel, that is the, the sense that perhaps how can I respond? What can I do? The issue is the urgency of your need to respond. And in that moment of recognizing that urgency, you move from being passive under the gospel to being actively engaged with the gospel and to seeking the reconciliation that the gospel speaks of. It is an encounter with God. As Paul says in Romans 16, this mystery was disclosed through the prophetic writings to bring about the obedience of faith. Not anything less today than obedience, the obedience of faith and obedience to the command of Christ is disobedience to the very word of God and rebellion against God himself. And until such time as we realize the, the, the solemnity of the, the encounter that we have under the ministry of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will come and we will go. And nothing will change. And the reconciliation is there in the gospel. But it doesn't affect me in any way because I don't recognize my need. I don't acknowledge the the authority of the word of God. And I simply carry on, alienated from God, under condemnation and under the wrath of God. And 
as surely as God has engaged in Christ, reconciling the world in your obedience to the urgent call of the gospel to be reconciled to God. You are called upon to complete that reconciliation. That's what happened to Paul. He thought nothing of Jesus. He would have killed him himself if he could. He tried to distort, to destroy the, those who were his disciples. Until that encounter, who are you, Lord? His, his understanding of what was happening was transformed in that moment. He suddenly realized that he was disobedient to the command of God and that now he must obey. Who are you, Lord? What will you have me to do? The engagement, the encounter. Don't trifle with disobedience at the command of God, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And thirdly, there is the exchange that's at the centre of the gospel proclamation that Paul has. In this encounter, what are they going to see? What is going to persuade them that this reconciliation is of key importance? It is that great statement at the end of this chapter. And in that great statement, there are two exchanges. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The Son of God, who was innocent, who was harmless, who was full of the beauty of God, no sin in thought, no sin in experience, never any act of rebellion against God. Every step that he took, he was perfectly holy. He was the sinless Son of God. He knew no, no sin intellectually or experientially. He was pure and he was perfect. And it is that Son of God, for our sakes, on our behalf, as our substitute, God made him to be sin. By the intervention of God, by the creative act of God, he brought about the situation where, in this moment, in the person of a sinless Son, that he was made sin. And of course she didn't become a sinner. And of course she wasn't guilty of personal sin. But in this moment, on Calvary's cross, he bore the guilt of her sin. And the words that, that Isaiah spoke in Isaiah chapter 53 and, and verse number 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in verse number 10, he made a soul an offering for sin. In the cross event, in the experience of the Son of God, here is the moment. He's the guilty one. And as the guilty one, by imputation, because God transferred the guilt of our trespasses into his account. And on Calvary's cross, 
It was the moment of reckoning with that guilt. It was the moment of dealing with that debt. It was the moment of the justice of God being satisfied. The cross event. The essential exchange. It's what we referred to at the near the beginning with regard to, to reconciliation itself. God took our trespasses and laid them on him. And because of that, he is accountable in the purposes of God. And as the sin bearer, he bore the wrath and curse of God due to us. What we could not do, what no one could do, God did in sending his son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh he inflicted the penalty and the penalty was paid and when Jesus said on the cross it is finished the work is complete the justice of God is satisfied and when the veil is rent in the temple and when the graves open there is the sense of something new the cross the exchange And the second exchange is the remarkable one that makes Paul a new creation so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The becoming that's like a genesis. It's a new creation. It's something that was impossible. It's something that we had left behind in the Garden of Eden. It is the, the righteousness of God it is the, the sense of fulfilling everything that God requires. Here is God's law and here is God's covenant. Here is God's requirement. The righteous person is the person who satisfies all of these requirements and who fulfills all that God requires. And then miraculously in him we become the righteousness of God. Her sins are forgiven. We are justified. We have a righteous standing in Christ. And for the rest of time and for eternity, God sees us in Christ as those who are sinless and as those who are righteous. And we, we, we can think of, of, the, of the looking glass of God's covenant relationship where he sees those who are his children, who are reconciled to him in Christ, where he sees them through the passion of Christ. And just as I take a, a blue piece of glass and look through it, everything is blue. If I take a red piece of glass, I look through it, everything is red. And as God takes the passion of Jesus and looks through the passion of Jesus to find us in him, he sees everything about Jesus. And he sees the perfection of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. He sees all that Jesus is and he sees that through of all those who are now reconciled to him. That great 
exchange, that at last reconciliation is complete and those who are transgressors become those who are the saints, the people of God, and those who were unrighteous and are given the status of being righteous because of Christ. And so today let's think of the importance of giving obedience to the gospel. Let's recognize that God has done everything himself in Christ. Let's recognize that this moment is an encounter with God where God calls upon us to be reconciled and that we cannot disobey God any longer and that when we do so, we will be like Paul. We will regard Christ no longer according to the flesh. We will see him in all his preciousness. We will see him in all his beauty and we will be that new creation in Christ Jesus. And as Matthew Henry said in closing, none are punished by the justice of God but those who hate to be reformed by the grace of God. No more disobedience, God is saying. Let's be reconciled. Let's know the glory of God's salvation. And let's know the beauty of standing in Christ and be accepted because of him and in him being made like him by the very grace of God. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we bow ourselves before you and we do acknowledge the need that we have to recognize the authority of your word and, and your claims upon us. Help us, O Lord God, to, to appreciate every moment that we are in your presence. Help us to appreciate the commands of the gospel and help us, O Lord God, to respond with your grace in our hearts that we may truly be reconciled to you and know the marvel of the great exchange that leads to the forgiveness of our sin and to being accepted as righteous in your sight. Bless us, we pray, and bless your words, and hear us and go before us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. The closing psalm is Psalm number 71 in the Scottish Psalter. On page number 311, Psalm 71, at verse number 14. And the tune is Strakathro. But I with expectation will hope continually, and yet with praises more and more I will thee magnify. From verse 14 to verse 17 to God's praise. But I with expectation will hope Oh, I live all the number.
Stand to the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.